I want to begin this morning by talking about two of the most difficult difficult times in a pastor's life. One of them is when you go to a new church. It may not be this way with the other retired pastors or the other people on staff here, but uh, my experience has been that when going to a new church, there's a tremendous temptation, a difficult temptation to give in to your people-pleasing nature. You, you show up in a new congregation and you want to want to make friends quickly. You want to find out what's the, you know, the, the culture of this church and you want to be embraced by the people. You want there not to be this, this loss of momentum between pastors. So you, you, the temptation is to, to do the things that you do to make people like you. I have to admit that I, I, I have struggled with that. I think I came to this congregation more well-prepared to, to name that temptation and to resist that temptation. But that's part of the difficulty of, of a pastor coming to a new congregation. John, Fred, is it resonating with you at all? No? Yeah, they're not saying? Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Mike. The uh, Second particularly difficult time is after a pastor has left a congregation. You've spent years with that congregation, 17 years in my most recent assignment. Um, they, they say that churches are made in the image of their pastor, by which I think they mean that if you stay some long enough, stay someplace long enough, uh, your passions, your vision, your priorities become the priorities and the vision of that congregation. Those that don't like them move on someplace else. <laughs> Maybe some new people come, come to the congregation who, who like those priorities, like the preaching style, like the whatever it is. But once you leave, the difficulty is that your successor, whoever he or she may be, doesn't necessarily have the same priorities or vision. And so then you start hearing the, the news coming through the grapevine. That program that you got started and was so important to you and the congregation over the course of those years has just been axed. It's no longer... In the budget, it's no longer, you know, leaders are no longer doing that. The things that you were so passionate about just seem to wither up and die. Now, I can't talk about my first experience of leaving a church back in the 80s, leaving the community chapel down in Nashua because Fred and Joyce's daughter and son-in-law took over as youth pastor there, so I can't say that. But it's difficult, isn't it? And, and this is not just pastors. I'm sure all of you have had things that you, you love doing and you passed it off to somebody else and they just didn't have the same passion for it. It's, it's difficult. So this week as I was thinking about the, the text, uh, the, the theme of this, this sermon this morning, I got thinking of what it would have been like for the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is a guy who, who started more churches than any of us probably combined in this, in this congregation. He was an itinerant church planter, went on three missionary trips over the course of which he started congregations, revisited congregations that he had started 
probably felt the great, tremendous need to be a people pleaser, to get to know these people in these towns and cities quickly and, and ingratiate himself to them so that they would accept the gospel and they'd sect, accept his brief leadership. And then, of course, moving on meant that multiple times he probably got letters from congregations saying, well, so-and-so is not doing it the way you told us to do it anymore. It's just not the same since you left. Leadership lacks something that you brought to this country. I can imagine him getting those kind of... I know he got those kind of letters because this morning in the text that we're going to look at, we see both of these, the people-pleasing and the the lament over uh, things that are no longer being done the way Paul... uh, We'll we'll hear these things expressed. So let's begin with a passage in Galatians chapter 1 that includes both of these difficult times for an itinerant church-planting pastor like Paul. Galatians chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 6. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. I wonder how Paul feels about the people that took over when he left. Hmm. As we have already said, so let me say it again, he says, as we have already said, so now I say it again, if any, anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria in Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. 
They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. First, there's Paul, the founding pastor of these churches in Galatia, who is finding fault with those who have come along after him in his absence. Uh, last week, I introduced them to you as Judaizers. Judaizers were people who said, Jewish people who had become Christians, who said that any Gentiles, like the ones that made up the majority of the churches in Galatia, that any Gentiles who wanted to become Christians first had to become Jews. They had to become observant in the law of Moses. They had to live by all of the rules and regulations and the commandments of the law before they could become Christians. And Paul expresses in no uncertain terms how disappointed he is with the fact that these Judaizers are coming into the congregation that he started, that he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. He's, he's disappointed that people have come along after him and have espoused this different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Then there's the accusation that Paul was a people pleaser in verse 10. It's suspected that the Judaizers were accusing Paul of dumbing down the gospel. Oh, you don't have to obey the law. You're free. You don't have to obey the law anymore. It's just, you know, get saved and you'll be fine. That's the accusation apparently that these Judaizers were making. Paul is dumbing down the gospel by eliminating this requirement that Gentiles become Jews first. The gospel of grace through faith is not rigorous enough for these people, and they're complaining about Paul's preaching. Then there's this possible accusation that Paul was just a minor assistant, a low-level flunky compared to the Jerusalem apostles, Peter and James and John and others. They're, they're accusing Paul of, of proclaiming a gospel without having the authority, perhaps, to proclaim that gospel. Paul replies and said, I, I didn't learn my gospel from those guys in Jerusalem. I didn't go to some seminary after I got saved and learned how to preach. No, this was revealed to me by Jesus Christ himself. You remember the story, right? On the Damascus Road, Paul is going to track down more Christians to persecute, and God speaks to him a bolt of lightning that just blinds him and knocks him to the ground. The voice coming out of that, that, that cloud why are you persecuting me? Absolutely transformed Paul's life. In the moment, the flash of an eye, a 180 degree turn in his life and in his beliefs, and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. It was only later that he would go to Jerusalem and compare notes with the apostles there to make sure that they or he were both proclaiming the same gospel. It says in verse 17 that Paul says that rather than going to Jerusalem, rather than learning at somebody's feet, instead he went to Arabia. It may not be obvious, but you know what mountain is located in Arabia? Mount Sinai. 
And who were two Old Testament characters that went and had conversations with God at the top of Mount Sinai? Moses and Elijah, the two biggest heavy hitters that there ever were in the Old Testament. So Paul is saying, you want to complain that I don't have the authority to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? I got it directly from Jesus Christ, and I met him on the mountain. Thank you very much. There's authority. Paul is walking in some mighty big footsteps. So, so far in this letter, it's, it's been full of overtones of disappointment and accusations, character assassination, divisions, and deceit on the part of others. Paul's love for these congregations is intense, but the grief that he's feeling as they're being led astray is equally intense. You think about the emotional toll that pastors have when they're concerned about the spiritual health of their congregation. Especially after you leave, you saw such tremendous growth. You saw people following the the will and purposes of God. You saw lives transformed, and now you have to let go of that and entrust that to somebody else. It can be a difficult time for a person like Paul. I imagine that Paul was not happy about that. Is that the understatement of the morning? (laughs) When Paul thought about the conversations, the teaching, the confusion, the divisions that were going on there, he wasn't saying, oh, praise God, that's nice. He wasn't happy about these circumstances, this situation. He's not saying, can't we all just get along, though, does he? He's a, he's a much more stern person. That He he's, doesn't shy away from conflict. So let's pick up the story again in Galatians chapter 5 and see what he has to say about this. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 13, a familiar passage from last week. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord. Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, with those, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't sound like a people pleaser, does it? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Paul's obviously not a people pleaser. He's not trying to curry favor with these people anymore, not that he ever did. He's not concerned that everybody's happy or or unhappy and that they need to be happy. When it comes to false doctrine, he is unwilling to settle just to keep everybody happy and getting along. The dissensions and the factions in the Galatian churches are the result of the acts of the flesh, human sinfulness, not the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of just getting along or mere happiness, Paul gives them a word a word to hang their hat on, a word to live by. The word is joy, the second of the fruit of the Spirit here. Joy. Now, these Gentile believers who had grown up in the pluralistic society with all kinds of gods that were being worshipped didn't have a word that represented the kind of joy that Christians know. For Gentile believers, they were probably more familiar with uh, the word happiness, uh, a word that represented that which comes as a result of material blessings. You're happy when you get a pay raise, right? It's better than getting a, you know, having your salary. So, material blessings, a, a, a source of happiness. Or success. We're happy when our plans go off the way we wanted them to, right? When we do something that produces success and victory, we're happy about that. We're happy when the life circumstances in which we leave our, live are pleasant circumstances. It's better if your grass doesn't die, right? And the flowers you plant don't wither up. It's, it, it's better if the toilet doesn't overflow first thing in the morning, right? I mean, happy circumstances, right? Or good fortune. That's what they would have been familiar with. When they were thinking about the best things in life, the happiness of life, that's that's, those are the kind of things that would have produced happiness. But Paul is using a word here which doesn't have to do with the life circumstances, the pleasant things, the successful things. He's using the word joy as a fruit of the Spirit to mean something altogether different. God, not pleasant circumstances, is at the center of joy. Joy comes through our memories of God's saving acts. We share that from time to time. People stand up front here and they share their testimony. They talk about the time that they went from being dead in their sins to being alive in Christ. They talk about the time where they were, their life was a mess because of the poor choices and the lack of wisdom that they had. And they talk about the transformation of their minds and hearts and lives that comes in Christ. And as we're retelling those stories, we are filled with joy. Joy comes as God reveals his word to us. 
you've had the aha moments, haven't you? And it's not just, oh, that's what that passage means, but it's, oh, that's what that passage means in my life. This is wisdom to live a more Christ-like life. This is joy. Joy comes as a result of reminiscing about God's faithful promises. You've read the little promise books, right? I mean, everybody has had one of those at some point. You just leaf through that and find hundreds and hundreds of promises that God has made to his children. God is faithful to those promises, which brings us joy. The, the fruit of, the, of joy is, is less a private emotion. I mean, when we're happy, oftentimes we want to share it with people, but it starts out, I'm just a happy person. This is a great day. Everything's going my way. Joy is less a private emotion than it is an intentional and enthusiastic response of the worshiping community. We share a joy, don't we? You have you meet a random stranger in the store and you start a conversation the way Isabel is always starting conversations at Walmart. But you meet this random stranger, you start a conversation, you discover that they're a Christian. Joy. I'm not alone. There's another person like me here. Joy is what we find when we realize that we have experienced the same grace, the death and resurrection of Christ as other people. We're part of a family. We're part of a joy-filled family. And paradoxically, the fruit of joy is often experienced in the middle of persecution. Paradox, isn't it? It's during the times where we are being persecuted in one way or another that we often discover joy. The Greek word for joy is kara, which includes the meaning of thankfulness. You know that other denominations, not so us so much, we, we call the communion that we share once a month here, we call that the Eucharist. Eukara, Eucharist. The middle of that word is this word joy and thanksgiving and for what are we thanks, thankful when we're sharing communion together, when we're sharing the Eucharist? We're thankful for persecution, aren't we? We're thankful that Jesus, rather than fighting back, allowed himself to die, to be crucified on a cross, opening the door for Easter Sunday morning. So joy, ironically, is often found in the midst of persecution, starting with Jesus' persecution. And the joy is found because it's reinforced that the reason we're in trouble, <laughs> the reason we're being persecuted is because we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. And if he was persecuted, then why should we think that we're going to have a happy-go-lucky life, right? If we're going to walk in Jesus' footsteps, we're going to get covered with the same kind of dust that he was covered with, and that dust often includes persecution. So in summary, joy is found in a saving, obedient, prayerful love relationship, not only with God, but also with our Christian brothers and sisters. 
Joy is rooted in right relationship with God, not the happy circumstances of life or the opinions of others. Joy is found in the intimate relationship that we have with Jesus, and he is the source of that joy. Well, now you have the dictionary definition of joy. Paul was not happy about what was going on in the Galatian churches, but he still had joy, and he could recommend to them that in the midst of their unhappiness, they too could have joy. But it's fleshed out with a picture of Paul's joy. It's fleshed out with the picture of Jesus' joy. And I would suggest to you this morning that it's also fleshed out in the picture of a man named Stephen and his joy. If you want to join me in Acts chapter 6, you remember the beginning of this story. There were Jewish people in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension in the day of Pentecost, and some of those uh, Jews had come from Greek or Gentile places around the kingdom, and so they had stayed on in Jerusalem, and there was a little bit of a tiff going on between the Hebraic Jews, those that uh, had become followers of Christ that grew up in, in Israel, and those who had grown up in other places, who Jews who had also become Christians. And their, the, the concern was that the, the Greek widows... The Greek Jewish widows were not receiving uh, the same kind of treatment when it came to the, the food pantry as the Hebraic Jewish widows were. And so the busy, busy apostles decided that they needed to have some people that would take care of this situation. The Rise Again Outreach people who would take care of the people that don't have enough food or enough clothing or many of the other essentials of life. And so they appointed seven deacons. Stephen was one of the deacons that was chosen, and we'll pick up his story, chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel." So Stephen is recruited and commissioned to make sure that the Greek Jewish Christian widows are getting the same kind of treatment that the Hebraic Jewish Christian widows are. But apparently he sees his task as not just running the soup kitchen, but also doing a little preaching on the side and working a few miracles. 
And he's very successful at this, so successful that it starts getting under the skin of the Jewish people, the same ones who had persecuted Jesus, the same one that had persecuted other disciples after the resurrection. Now they start to persecute Stephen. He's performing great wonders and signs, and he's preaching the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, but they seize him. They plot against him and seize him, and they take him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling Council, and you can read the speech that he gives in front of them, and it's not a people-pleasing speech. He presents the Sanhedrin with this history of Moses and Israel and Jesus, a speech that they're not much happy, they're, they're not very happy with. We pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 51. As he finishes up his speech, he says, you stiff-necked people. Okay, so word to the wise, if you want to be a people pleaser, don't call other people stiff-necked. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. (laughs) Another accusation that's going to get under their skin. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were happy. Oh, I'm sorry. No, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Can you just gnash your teeth for me? Let's see what that sounds like. They gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen, but my favorite word in the Bible, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I mean, if there was any question about what was going to happen to him, he'd just seal the fate right there, right? I see heaven open and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. The final words that Stephen speaks are virtual quotes of Jesus' final words, aren't they? You know what stoning is, right? A whole crowd of people pick up stones maybe the size of your head and they throw them at your head. 
happy? No. And yet there in the midst of being killed by the religious leaders of the Jewish people, he is so filled with the Holy Spirit that out of that overflowing joy, he can pray for the forgiveness of those who are killing him. I got wondering this past week, as Saul, now named Paul, was writing to the Galatians about joy, the fruit of the Spirit, what do you suppose was the image in his mind? Might he have been remembering years back to standing there giving his approval of the stoning of Stephen? Might his inclusion of the word joy, a joy that's rooted in right relationship with God, a joy that doesn't have anything to do with life circumstances, but instead is the overflow of God's love for us and our love for God. Might it not have been in Paul's mind that he was thinking back to the words that Stephen spoke? Might he not be saying, now there was a man who was full of the fruit of joy. And I want to grow up to be just like him. We live in a culture that is trying to get us to dumb down the gospel. Right? The gospel that says what God says is the rule of our life. God's righteousness is the pattern for our life. God's will are the marching orders for our life. God's kingdom is the first priority in our life. And that kingdom is made up of people who have died to themselves, have confessed their sins, have repented for their sins, have turned their back on their past, and are now following God in his ways. With all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they love God over anything else. Can you think of a few ways where the world in which we live is trying to dumb down that message? And your next door neighbor, too. Yes, uh, the, the laws of our country. The tropes and themes of our entertainment. The cry of people who have suffered injustice and sometimes what we're really seeing is people who want God's will, God's ways, God's priorities to become the norm for all of us. Our world is trying to get us to dumb down the gospel. Behind that, I hear the phrase, 
I just want you to be happy. Right? How often have we, unfortunately, said that to our children and our grandchildren? I just want you to be happy. That's the most important thing, that you're happy. Well, in order to be happy, that means that the circumstances of your life need to go the way you want them to, right? Which is not always the way God wants us to live. But if we settle for happiness, it's, it's that, right? It's settling. It's settling for second best. You can have happiness or you can have joy. Joy is often seen in the midst of persecution and misunderstanding and all of the other things that we're experiencing. But do you want joy or do you want happiness? Let's just get along. Let's not talk about the difficult things. Let's just be happy. Which do you want? I mean, this sounds really good, doesn't it? But this is what God offers us. This is what Christ offers us. This is what Stephen offers us. This is what Paul offers us. So let's not settle for second best. Let's not be satisfied with anything less than the joy of the Lord. Bow your heads with me. You may not have been able to identify with the difficult times of a pastor going to a new church or a pastor who's moved on and left a congregation behind that's going in different directions, but certainly you have faced situations in your life where you were not happy, where things were difficult, especially when you were challenged to weigh the joy of the Lord and the happiness of this world especially times in which you felt like you were being pressured to dumb down your faithfulness to God, your obedience to God. Would you bring one of those situations or a couple of those times to mind? And would you have a silent conversation with your Heavenly Father about the choices that you made? perhaps the compromises that you made. Or perhaps the feeling of joy that you had when you made a hard choice and you chose to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But would you have a conversation with God about those kind of times and perhaps the the things that might happen this week, the temptations that might come this week, And would you listen to the Lord as he speaks words of joy to you? And would you express your commitment to follow in his steps and to experience his joy?
Lord, I've been thinking a lot in recent months about the direction our culture is going and the impact that it's having having on families in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we, we need to have deeper conversations about some of these things, but Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the courage to choose you. Ultimately, at the end of the day, at the end of the conversation, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to understand you and your ways more clearly and be more and more committed to being your people. Not dumbing anything down, not making it easy so people will be happy, that we'll be happy. But Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to ask for joy. To overflow with that joy. Lord, we thank you this morning for filling us with the Spirit who produces in us love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, shine through us this week. We give it to you. In Christ's name we pray and all of God's children say, Amen.